Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Esco Fullman. This is the MetaQuest podcast. Today, we're going to talk psychedelics. Specifically, I'm going to share with you a fantastic mushroom trip report from 1914. After that, we're going to look at a 2010 mushroom trip, so 96 years later. Uh, this is actually something I read many, many years ago, maybe like seven or eight years ago, and I remember this story because it was so... It was hilarious and mind-blowing and disturbing at the same time. And I was extremely thrilled that I was able to find it again. I had totally given up on that. So we're going to look at those two accounts and then I am going to make some comments on them. And perhaps, if you're lucky, even share some of my own experiences. All you need to do is just to lean back and enjoy these fascinating stories. So the first story I'm going to read for you appeared in Science Magazine, September 18, 1914. A recent case of mushroom intoxication. Although it has been stated in standard works on fungi that a common and otherwise edible species, Panelus papilonaceus, sometimes has intoxicating properties. It seems desirable to record the recent experience of two persons who ate considerable numbers of this species unmixed with other kinds. They were familiar with the species and various others, and had on several occasions eaten it in small numbers mixed with other kinds without noticeable effects. This is a small, rather delicate, umbrella-shaped mushroom which is common on cultivated land, planted to farm crops. Mr. W., whose narrative is here given, is a middle-aged, vigorous man, strictly temperate in his habits. He is a good botanist and has made a special study of fungi. The account of his experience was dictated to me by him about a week after the event, while fresh in his memory. The lady, referred to as Mrs. Y., who also ate the mushrooms, is his niece by marriage. Her husband, Mr. Y., was present but ate no mushrooms. He could observe some things not noticed by the victims, both of whom experienced nearly the same effects. Mrs. Y. also gave the writer a personal account of some of her symptoms, essentially the same as those here narrated. This article in its present form has been read by Mr. W. and approved by him. The parties are natives of Oxford County, Maine, where the event occurred. The real names are withheld by request. The effects experienced are in some respects similar to those caused by hashish. Others are like those experienced by some opium smokers, especially the multiplication of objects and their bright colors. The appearance of vivid colors recalls the symptoms described by Dr. Weir Mitchell when he took Mexican mezcal pills as an experiment. The loss of the power of estimating time and distance, as in some dreams, is interesting, as existing with other faculties were active. Narrative of Mr. W. On July 10, 1914, I gathered a good mess of the mushrooms and had them cooked for dinner. There may have been a pound of them as gathered, but when fried in butter, they made no great quantity, owing to their softness and delicate structure. They were all eaten by Mrs. Y and myself. Peculiar symptoms were perceived in a very short time. Noticed first that I could not collect my thoughts easily when addressed, nor answer readily. Could not will to arise promptly, Walked a short distance, the time was short, but seemed long drawn out. Could walk straight, but seemed drowsy. Had no disagreeable stomach sensations. Effects seemed entirely mental. Remember little about the walk. Mrs. Y was in about the same condition, according to Mr. Y. My mind very soon appeared to clear up somewhat, and things began to seem funny, and rather like intoxication. Walked with Mr. Y. A little later, objects took on peculiar bright colors. A field of red-top grass seemed to be in horizontal stripes of bright red and green, and a peculiar green hue spread itself all over the landscape. 
At this time, Mrs. Y saw nearly everything green, but the sky was blue, and her white handkerchief appeared green to her, and the tips of her fingers seemed to be like the heads of snakes. Next, say about half an hour after eating, both of us had an irresistible impulse to run and jump, which we did freely. I did not stagger, but all my motions seemed to be mechanical or automatic, and my muscles did not properly nor fully obey my will. Soon both of us became very hilarious, with an irresistible impulse to laugh and joke immoderately and almost hysterically at times. The laughing could be controlled only with great difficulty. At the same time, we were indulging extravagantly in joking and what seemed to us funny or witty remarks. Mr. Y, who was with us, said that some of the jokes were successful, others not so, but I cannot remember what they were about. Mr. Y says that at this time the pupils of her eyes were very much dilated and that Mrs. Y at times rolled up her eyes and had some facial contortions in slight frothing of saliva at the mouth. Later we returned to the house about one quarter of a mile. At this time I had no distinct comprehension of time. A very short time seemed long drawn out and a longer time seemed very short the same as two distances walked. Though not so when estimated by the eye, the hilarious condition continued, but no visual illusions occurred at this time. After entering the house, I noticed that the irregular figures on the wallpaper seemed to have creepy and crawling motions, contracting and expanding continually, though not changing their forms. Finally, they began to project from the wall and grew out toward me, from it, with uncanny motions. About this time I noticed a bouquet of large roses, all of one kind, on the table and another on the secretary. Then, at once, the room seemed to become filled with roses of various red colors and of all sizes, in great bunches, wreaths and chains, and with regular banks of them all around me, but mixed with some green foliage, as in the real bouquets. This beautiful illusion lasted only a short time. About this time I had a decided rush of blood to my head, with marked congestion, which caused me to lie down. I then had a very disagreeable illusion. Innumerable human faces of all sorts of sizes, but all hideous, seemed to fill the room and to extend off in multitudes to interminable distances while many were close to me on all sides. They were all grimacing rapidly and horribly and undergoing contortions, all the time growing more and more hideous. Some were upside down. The faces appeared in all sorts of bright and even intense colors, so intense that I could only liken them to flames of fire in red, purple, green, and yellow colors, like fireworks. At this time I began to become alarmed and sent for the doctor, but he did nothing, for the effects were wearing off when he came. Real objects at this time appeared in their true forms, but if colored, they assumed far more intense or vivid colors than natural, dull red becoming brilliant red, etc. A little later, when standing up, I had the unpleasant sensation of having my body elongate upward to the ceiling, which, receding, I grew far up, like Jack's beanstalk, but retained my natural thickness, collapsed suddenly to my natural height. At this time I noticed my parlor organ and tried to play on it, to see the effect, but could not concentrate my mind nor manage my fingers. About this time my mind became confused and my remembrance of what happened next is dim and chaotic. Probably there was a partial and brief loss of consciousness. Laid down to wait for the doctor. Looking at my hands, they seemed to become small, emaciated, shrunken and bony, like those of a mummy. Mrs. Y says that at this time her hands and arms seemed to grow unnaturally large. 
When I attempted to scratch the spot on my neck, it felt like scratching a rough cloth meal bag full of meal, and it seemed as large as a barrel, and the scratching seemed quite impersonal. Later I imagined I was able, by a sort of clairvoyance, to tell the thoughts of those around me. Soon after this, our conditions rapidly assumed the very hilarious face, similar to that of the early stages, with much involuntary laughing and joking. This condition gradually diminished after three o'clock until our mental conditions became perfectly normal at about six o'clock p.m. The entire experience lasted about six hours. No ill effects followed. There was no headache, nor any disturbance of the digestion. A. E. Verrill, Yale University. So that is how an account of a mushroom trip from 1914 sounds. Now I present you a similar account, yet almost a hundred years later. This is published on arrowwit.org on March 23rd. 2010. The report here is titled Juxtaposition of All Selves into Singularity. Before we do this, though, I just want to give a brief thank you to the channel sponsor, which is Crypto.com. I have one of their debit cards. It's awesome because it's made out of metal, so it's very heavy. And you can load it with regular money, link it to your bank account. You can also load it with cryptocurrencies, switch back and forth between various cryptocurrencies and or regular money. You can also get a 2% cashback on all your purchases and a free $50 for you and for me. Uh, just follow the link in the show notes. They also have a special event coming up very soon where you can purchase Bitcoin at half price. I'm also leaving a link for the details of that. Juxtaposition of all selves into singularity by Phantom Seal. We're dealing with mushrooms, three and a half grams, ingested orally. The body weight of the person who shared this account is listed as 125 pounds. I always assumed that those legendary bad trips I heard about in anti-drug literature and from my parents didn't actually happen. Well, they do happen. And the cause of mine was a combination of a familiar dose with an unfamiliar batch filtered through some philosophical misconceptions I had. However, I will hold the experience as one of the most important defining moments in my life. It was the moment I came closest to both complete ego death as well as actual physical death, and I offer my experience to anyone who is interested in psychedelics to be warned and prepared for the type of tests you must sometimes face if you ever accidentally hit that ceiling of consciousness. It was early July, and me and my true love who will henceforth be referred to as V, we're going to again take a trip to that dazzling psychedelic mushroom land in celebration of her birthday. We had tripped several times before together, and we have a very loving, fulfilling relationship. So I was expecting the best, and I was in a very happy, excited mood. But first, some information about my drug history. I've taken probably more than 75 total DXM trips, which has created a continuum of mental activity leading eventually into an unpleasant, cramped mental box. DXM was my first outlet to different realms of consciousness, but it is a very small path, one without any real spiritual knowledge. For me, DXM caused acne, depression, high blood pressure, and different pupil sizes for days after trips. I had used salvia, probably 20 times, and never had a bad trip. Once, a party was held by some mischievous entity who informed me that I was, quote, the most fucked up anyone has ever been, unquote. And so I got to see the truth. Banners advertising, reality is an illusion, flew streamers confetti. My friend got up and celebrated with kazoos. Since this experience, I feel like any further experimentation with salvia would be interpreted as insolence by that mysterious consciousness which inhabits the soul of the plant. I've done mushrooms and acid probably a combined 20 times. I lose track of which experiences belong to which drug. They are very similar to me. And once even induced a bad trip by listening to Wolf Eyes. 
which is a horror noise band, as a test and out of curiosity. Every time I've done mushrooms, I've taken the same dose, 3.5 grams, as I did this time, and it goes to show that you should always take a preliminary dose with a new batch to ensure that you are prepared. Indeed, the mushrooms we had were supposed to be very strong. Their stems were marked with purple and blue spirals, which I assume indicates high presence of hallucinogenic potency. A friend of ours, having taken the same dosage, had become lost in a Columbus park, mistaking his environment for Egypt. I figured that it wouldn't be an issue for someone with the aforementioned salvia experience under my belt, so I took the full three and a half grams in one sitting, slathering them in peanut butter. 30 minutes in. Me and V went outside to a lot behind my apartment. Both of us are artists connected to our inner child, so we were planning to go draw with sidewalk chalk. I had taken a book on Michelangelo, and I was hoping to reproduce one of his drawings in chalk. When we actually got out there, however, I got lost in a haze of artistic anxiety and indecision. I simply could not settle on anything. Every line was hesitant, my spatial distortions were completely off, and I had almost forgotten that it could be due to the coming up on mushrooms, since I was not actually getting any other changes in perception. I would second-guess myself, and then judge each single line like a monument to some huge personal failure. We were listening to the Fury Furnaces, which made my mind jump around frantically. There was a lyric which haunted me. Quote, I thought I was thinking, but apparently not. Unquote. I kept lingering on that line. How can such a contradiction exist? I felt like I had forgotten how to think. I told V that we should go in, and she agreed. She was not getting good work done due to similar mental circumstances. Inside, I started to realize that I might face something really big, and I wanted to have a full stomach so that the mushrooms alone weren't the only thing in my stomach. I prepared a sandwich, took a bite, and couldn't take another. I wanted to drink something, but all the cups were dirty. We decided to try to watch a movie, and within 10 seconds, I realized I would be unable to follow it. I put on a blanket because I was cold. Then I realized I was hot. All of this was adding up to a state of nervous contradiction and negation. I started to become just really irritated and borderline angry. I decided I should just try to sleep, so I threw off my clothes and took out my contacts which were itching badly. I tried to induce vomiting because I felt sick, but I couldn't. I told V to find and put on Godspeed You Black Emperor, but she was unable to find the CD. Later on, I realized this might have been a subconscious desire to have an appropriate soundtrack for the end of the world. At this point, my thoughts were racing. Quote, Want to draw, but feel blocked. Want to eat, but not hungry. Want to drink, but no clean cups. Want to watch a movie, but can't follow it. Feel like vomiting, but can't. Want to listen to Godspeed, but can't find it. Got ready for sleep, but can't because I'm losing my fucking mind. End quote. I'm in bed with my face into the pillow, pulling my hair. V comes in and lies next to me. Me. This is awful. V. I know. Me. I need to forget all of this. <laughs> I start to cry. V. We poisoned ourselves. We just need to sleep, and when we wake up, it'll be like nothing ever happened. She goes to clean a cup so I can have a drink of water. With my eyes closed, I see what I can only describe as a slot machine, infinitely long and tall, that adjusts in perspective according to my head's actual position. On the face of each is a picture of myself in a different emotion and physical state. Whichever picture is located in the center of my range of vision is the emotion I feel fully, 
but the slot machine is cycling at such an alarming rate that I'm feeling what I estimate to be 10 emotions every second. My facial muscles work to accommodate each motion, and I essentially lose control of my face. I feel extreme pain, followed by extreme euphoria for a millisecond each. I feel, essentially, everything at once. Finally, the slot machine rests on a single face. Madness. It's a picture of myself in green, clawing at my eyes. I realize what is going to happen. When the machine adds the sum total of all I've been, I will be defined. And I will die. Some scientists speculate that since the universe exploded from an infinitely powerful singularity, the gravitational field may one day become too weak to sustain this expansion, and the universe will start to gravitate inwards and collide with another singularity, possibly to restart the entire process anew. I see every human consciousness as analogous to the Big Bang. Throughout our experience as humans, we become more and more complex and organized from our embryonic states to the point that we grow up and start integrating concepts into patterns of thought, behavior, emotion, just as the universe organized into clusters of planets and stars, comets, black holes, etc. As I'm running from the bedroom to the living room to find V, all the concepts and truths I accept regarding nature, matter, humanity, sociology, biology, philosophy, art, start to rapidly compute into analogies which physically connect to one another. Everything subjective, everything regarding the self, my emotions, dreams, etc., become the earth, and all my perceptions regarding the external world are the stars. And the entire universe is folding in on itself. And I am simply not ready for whatever happens after it. I feel like I will have completed life, solved the puzzle. It was as if I have seen every part, or almost every part, through my observations and how they fit together. So I was worthy to view the gestalt, the whole form, one singularity. And I thought, no one would be allowed to come back from seeing that, because you must be outside of that form in order to view it. I thought of what V said. It would be like nothing ever happened. I thought I would die, for sure. But I also thought I might be reincarnated. Maybe due to her statement, when you wake up, or simply exiled somewhere away from this world that I know and love. I didn't think a living person is allowed to see what's on the other side of the end of the universe. Near this time in my life, I was extremely immersed in Ayn Rand's novels and objectivism as a practical philosophy. For those that don't know, her philosophy revolves around the love of the ego and the virtue of selfishness, or at least rational self-interest. Being an artist, the fountainhead greatly influenced my drive to work hard at learning my craft, rather than just sit around and wait for inspiration. However, worshipping my ego and reveling in the separation between me and my environment will not allow me to sit complacently as it dissolves. I mistook my ego for my actual life, which I believe was not actually at risk. I tell her, I'm going to die. Call 911. Right now. She refuses on the grounds that I am just having a bad trip. So I run to my neighbor's apartment right across the hall. I'm frantically trying to get them to call, but they demand to know the situation, and I don't think I can even take the time to explain without dying first. I feel like I'm being tested. If I'm able to go out into the world, 
in my underwear at the risk of public humiliation, legal trouble, hospital bills, potentially losing my job. I worked in a movie theater located in the outdoor mall area right next to my apartment complex. Having my parents and the world see me for what I was, exposed and scared and on drugs, then I would have earned the right to live. As I attempt to run out of the building, V and a neighbor attempt to stop me. The neighbor is about twice my size, and both of them are grabbing me as hard as they can. I'm pulling on the door frame with all my might. I feel their hands as a thousand corpses' hands, trying to hold me into my coffin. Gradually they let go, and I fly headfirst on the concrete steps, flat on my face, fracturing my nasal bone, bloodying my face. I don't even register the pain. It feels like I just fell through a huge number of patterned walls. I take off running as fast as I've ever run. I don't have contacts or glasses on, and since I'm legally blind without correction, I can barely discern forms from blurry blocks of color. The sun is setting, and I run towards the exit of the apartment complex. I get a car to stop and tell the driver as calmly as I can under the circumstances that I have poisoned myself with mushrooms and need help. He says, Nah, man, I got kids in here. I look and I do not see kids. I assume that he was basically the universe's analogy for this cokehead idiot I know who inexplicably always wanted to hang out even though I made it consistently clear how little I respected him. I always made these half-assed transparent excuses not to hang out and now there was some universal equity. Next, I turn towards my place of employment. I get to the back of the building and successfully stop a car with a man driving and a woman in the passenger seat. I try to the best of my ability to explain to them that I'm going to die and I jump into the back of the car and demand that they take me to the hospital. The guy gets out, comes to me, and starts hitting my legs and trying to pull me out of the car. He's yelling, Get the fuck out! I associate the door he's trying to drag me out of with death. And so the opposite door, the passenger's side, must be my chance at life. I scramble across the seats, onto the woman's lap, and then out her door. I run as fast as I can into the parking lot. My brain is in a whirl, and I figure out that the security guard for the theater, who shall be referred to as X, can help me. I've known him for several years, and I figure he would understand I was on drugs and needed help, and I trusted him. At this point, he represented the concepts of security and life, a trusted friend and rational problem solver. Once an hour, he will take a walk around the building on patrol. So I start to scream for X, but he's not outside. I get to the intersection that is formed by the street the movie theater is at and another perpendicular street. For some reason, probably a sense of embarrassment, I decide to take the perpendicular street. I love my job, and I was glad to be able to keep it after this incident. But if I had simply obeyed the rules of the game, clearly internally defined at the outset, I wouldn't have faced the trouble I'm about to explain to you. As soon as I reach the other side, I'm standing outside an ice cream store. There are probably close to 20 people eating outside and loitering around. I cannot see, so everybody there appears as faceless, non-specific, quote-unquote, people. I ask them all to help, and everybody keeps turning away from me. Looking back and realizing how scared people must have been, I understand, but still wish someone had acknowledged me. In this entire experience, all it would have taken was one single person assuring me, calm down, I'm going to call 911 right now. So to try and get some attention for my cause, I attempt to run full speed into the glass door with my head to shatter it. I had passed up my work, and without any real direction now, I was confused and grasping for straws. I smash into the glass, 
fall backwards, hear a scream. Apparently, I blacked out, got up, and ran another two blocks, because that's where my next memory starts. I'm staring diagonally into the intersection in front of the shopping center. On one side is a security guard employed by the shopping center, and on the other, a police officer. I think to myself that I can turn myself over to the security guard, but since it's not X, I don't want to settle, and I could turn myself over to the cops, but I have a problem with authority, and he may take me straight to jail instead of the hospital, so I decide to take my chances by running between them into the intersection. I don't know what I was thinking at this point, because I seem to forget my original intention of getting help and almost be putting myself into the way of death. I think perhaps this experience was a callback to another mushroom trip I had where me and V took a walk in the city at sunset and life unfolded as a perfectly created game where everything we saw was conceptualized and represented conceptual trends rather than just isolated events. We almost followed a group of people into a crosswalk on a don't walk sign. The first people in the group almost got hit and returned back to the site they came from. I look at V and say, that represents groupthink and group mistake. I saw the intersection as a microcosm for life. And I think this time I was submitting myself to the mercy of life, to chance. Or maybe it was just because the whole event felt like the last five minutes of a movie and I needed a climax worthy of what preceded it. Or maybe I was just confused and crazy with a serious head injury. Most likely, it was a combination of all three. A cop grabs my arm and I yank it away from him. As I approach the geometrical center of the intersection, a millisecond timer hits 0, 0.00. And then it starts into a positive counter. That number, later, I think represented what could have been a timer for the end of my life. And when I got there, there was a coin flip to see if I lived or died. I get to the other side of the intersection, and I feel my muscles lock up and see everything fading to black. When I came to, I'm in an ambulance. I'm told that I was tased by the cop as soon as I got to the other side of the intersection. At the hospital, I'm diagnosed with a brain hemorrhage, fractured nasal bone, a bruised rib, and tons of lacerations all over my feet and body. For two days, I'm in the ICU and spend another four altogether. They were extremely close to having to drill into my head to relieve the pressure. But thankfully, they never did, and I survived without any enduring injuries. My stepdad's military insurance thankfully covers the medical bills, so I have no expenses beside the court costs. I get $700 in fees, two years probation, and five years where any alcohol and drug charges will cost me seven months in jail. And as I leave the courtroom, I feel such an immense happiness and love for all things. I am extremely fortunate for the way everything turned out. I feel like Dostoevsky facing the firing squad, only to be pardoned at the very last second. This event gave him inspiration. Most of his books reflect this theme of near-death experience, and it also gave him the drive to finish some of his greatest novels, being completely aware of the fact that he would one day die. This event has affected me in very much the same way. This will be one of the most defining moments in my life, and one I will revisit often in art. During the first month or so after this experience, I had very little recollection of what it was that had caused this madness, and I was sure that I would never, ever take psychedelics again. My mind blocked out a number of details that slowly, little by little, came back to me. It seemed that everything that had happened in the peak of the trip was too much for my brain to comprehend, and so it buried them under waves of mental noise. When, 
almost three months after the experience, I had decoded the last of the information, I started to realize that the trip is concurrent with a lot of Buddhist ideals and with the concept of ego-death in general. It was not, as I first assumed, that I had seen something as meaningless as a giant refrigerator monster chasing me down, trying to eat me. I had viewed the truth at the end of all things. Everything as one. As Phil Elverum sings, The world is in me, and I am in the world. Altogether, it was not the trip that was bad. It was my attitude towards it. It was the worship of ego I had adopted. I consider it a feeling of myself, and not of psilocybin, which truly caused this experience. I have been researching Terence McKenna recently, and although I'm too much of a rationalist to agree with all of the things he said, it would appear based on my experience, that psilocybin lets me contact something which is pure information. I like to call this thing the Logos. My definition lies somewhere between McKenna's and Aristotle's. It is the entire logic and balance of the universe, the thing which binds matter all together, and also the process of organization into hierarchies. The Logos, at least, has complete knowledge of the individual which is communicating with it, perhaps of the entire history of genetic information, and even more so, perhaps even over the entire history of the universe and beyond. In the future, we will master these realms to apply engineering and science to these inner worlds, which are truly the most mysterious thing we're capable of currently exploring, probably more so than the local areas of space with we can explore while still dependent on combustible fuel. Will I ever do psychedelics again? Yes. And I do not answer this question lightly. I genuinely feel, as someone receptive to these experiences, I usually trip roughly twice as hard as everyone I know under equivalent doses, and as someone with a rational, adventurous mind, I have almost an obligation to the future of mankind to report, through my art, those truths behind this world that we know. I'm taking a five-year break, enough to wear off that suspended jail sentence, but after that, I eagerly await the worlds to find on the other side of ego death. Whew. As intense and captivating as this was, I do just want to share a few observations and parallels between these two stories. Starting with the 1914 story, Quote, all my motions seem to be mechanical or automatic, end quote. I can't help drawing a parallel between this and this quote from the 2010 report. Life unfolded as a perfectly created game where everything we saw was conceptualized and represented conceptual trends rather than just isolated events. I mean, this could be me reading too much in, into it, but it seems to me that at least this notion that the whole world seems automated this is actually quite interesting that that both notice something along those lines also something else from the 2010 story i got lost in a haze of artistic anxiety i simply couldn't settle on anything this reminds me very much of the 1914 story where um the person tries to play the piano but simply just can't Settle on it, I think those are the words. The 2019 report also talks about hideous faces undergoing contortions and looking at his own hands, describes them as shrunken, bony, and mummy-like. I, I can't help revealing this, but I've actually tried almost the exact same thing, looking at my hands while tripping and 
just seeing them turn into these old, yeah, shrunken mummy-like hands. It's actually, I can't even describe it any better than that. It's very weird that someone experienced that a uh, hundred years prior to my own experience. <laughs> but, yeah. And from the 2010 report, concepts that turn into physical objects are seen as interconnected. There are some commonalities between these two stories as well. Uh, both <laughs> wanted to call the doctor, I mean, ultimately end up <laughs> uh, being attended to medically. Uh, but none of them probably needed it. I mean, the guy from The Modern Tale clearly needed a doctor, but not because of the <laughs> drugs he took, rather because of the injuries he suffered banging his head into the glass wall. Both also suffer from illusions, and both talk about facial contortions. Both see themselves as green. That's also an odd, yeah, or just an oddity. Now, just some differences as well that are noteworthy to me, at least. The old story doesn't have the pre-assumption that anything spiritual or philosophical can be gained from this experience, whereas the guy from the modern story assumes that that is the case. And I think it's um, relevant to just interject here that expectations do matter. But then again, in the case of the old story, someone did choose to capture it in a science magazine. Or not in a science magazine, but in science magazine. So maybe there was some intuition that this could hold some value for posterity. I also just want to note that the 2010 story is characterized by the person's previous experiences and what could be called extreme introspection. Even in spite of the very different perspectives before any of these trips were commenced. I think it's interesting to see some of these odd similarities. Now, we don't know too much about what happens in the brain when people use psychedelics, but as one of my viewers recently noted, much research indicates that the brain displays less activity rather than the expected more on psychedelic drugs, that is. And this actually raises some profound questions, such as, is the way we experience the world on psychedelics in some sense more accurate than normally? I mean, I don't have the answer, but there's probably little doubt that our brains regulate the way we experience reality. It would simply be too confusing if we saw, for instance, all dust particles in the air. And also, there's really no reason for us to use too much brain power on something that's highly familiar. When I enter my office, for instance, that I'm in right now, I know that there's a big table in the middle of the room. My brain doesn't have to allocate a lot of resources to produce an image of said table. And I can't help thinking about cognitive neuroscientist Jonas Kaplan. He was a previous guest on this podcast, but we were talking about how perception is changed when people use psychedelics. He suggested that top-down is the normal way of functioning, but influenced by psychedelics, it seems that we use a bottom-up approach. This may be what's happening. I mean, he did say that this was a theory of his, but... What that means is that on psychedelics, we see things more naively, in a sense, uh, as almost perhaps for the first time, and then the brain tries to make sense of it, not the other way around. So here's my million-dollar speculation. Returning to the 2010 story, the incident at the intersection where V and the author sees the little things as representations of a macrocosm. Again, this is also a speculation on my part, but I can't escape this thought that maybe this is actually how we always see the world. Or, maybe more accurately, 
a raw experience of the world before it's filtered through our senses and our awareness and essentially our brain and its mechanisms. The real difference is, or maybe, that we're able to notice it when we're on drugs. In that sense, it actually potentially sheds some light on the potentially real or true fabric of the universe, or at least our place in it. To me, these observations really are fascinating and important. And for that reason, I think it's important that we don't conflate psychedelic drugs with other drugs, especially when we judge them. I mean, they're not physically addictive, they certainly aren't party drugs, and insofar that people plan their experiences thoroughly in a safe environment, I have a hard time seeing what bad could come from them. As the main character in the 2010 story we just heard said, it was his own attitude that made it a bad trip. Would I like to live in a world where everyone scrambled around in a permanent haze on LSD? No, thank you. But I do sincerely believe that there are some profound lessons that we can learn from the experiences, whether we're scientists or civilians. Oh, I really wanted to share one of my own experiences with you, but I feel like this has been dragged out a little too long. But okay, but let me just give you the short version. I did try once, and this actually started with me looking at my hands and seeing them as these mummy-like, almost skeleton-like yeah, things. I don't know if that completely covers it. But I basically witnessed that my hands became old. As old as they would ever be. And... When they reached the final stage, I realized this is how my hands will look when I die. But then I noticed the process started to reverse, and my hands became young again. This is where I had the idea to go and look in the mirror. I was surprised to see myself as pixelated, and the closer I looked at my own face in the mirror, the more I realized that I was in fact pixelated. And this is when things turned really weird. At this point, I started seeing everything as math. And it's actually a little hard to explain how that works. But I would see, I would see lines between all objects. I would see things as pixelated when watching them from a close distance, and I would see vanishing points. I mean, yeah, it's, I don't know how to explain it. I wouldn't see equations or numbers, but I saw lines and geometric relationships between everything. And I couldn't escape the idea later, that is, that I actually saw things as they really are, whatever that means, and that the illusions I suffer from are, in fact, what constitutes reality when I'm not on psychedelics. A couple months after this experience, I watched a YouTube original, I think, some science show, and there was a person there. He had been this surfer dude, just started in college, then he went to this karaoke bar and someone decided to rob him. So they basically knocked him out from behind, um, hitting him in the back of his head with a bottle. And a friend took him to the hospital, but they released him almost right away. They told him he had a mild concussion and that he needed to stay at home. But he just had this weird sensation that everything had changed. Nothing looked as it used to, and he couldn't go out, and he also started talking in vague terms about seeing things as math. This person finds himself sitting at some cantina, 
and there's a physics professor sitting next to him, and the only relief this person can find is to draw the things he sees. I mean, he still sees reality, but he just sees it in a different way, and he has a really hard time explaining this to people and trying to explain his friends and family the change he's gone through because he doesn't understand what has happened. So he's drawing this... Yeah, I mean, it looks like a geometrical symbol of some sort. And next to him sits a physics professor who asks him, what is that thing you're drawing? To which he replies, I don't know. And the physics professor just can't escape the notion that this is actually a representation of pi the mathematical concept, pi, that is. And, I mean, this story goes on, and this, uh, the person who had this experience um, later pursues a degree in math, I believe, and, I mean, that's a whole other story, a very interesting story, actually. You could look it up yourself, probably, if you're interested in that. But, turns out that the this person is later examined by some neuroscientist, and they find that there's a region in his brain that was apparently damaged when he took this hit to his head. And that region is believed to regulate what enters our conscious minds and what stays in the unconscious part of the brain. And this is when I googled this person and looked at some of his drawings. Most of them are online on his website. I can leave a link for that below. These drawings of his, I mean, almost accurately resemble what I saw on my own acid trip. And my best guess, my most rational guess, I guess, <laughs> at this time, is probably that the psychedelic drugs I consumed somehow inhibited the region of my brain that governs what is allowed into our conscious mind and what is not. In other words, the filtering process of reality was temporarily out of order. Well, temporarily for me, but not for this person I saw in the documentary. I mean, this was a profound experience. It really was. I would probably be interested in pursuing it at some point in my life. Okay. This is a major topic, and um, I may return to it in the future. But for now, I just want to thank you for listening to all of this. I know it's a lot to take in, probably, especially if you have no experiences yourself, or no hands-on experiences with psychedelics. Um, take it for what it, what it is, a testimony to the elusive nature of reality, at least when you're a human being in the early 21st century. And uh, thanks for listening to the MetaQuest podcast. I'm your host, Asko Fallman. And until next time, have a good one. Cheers.